Just to continue to reflect for a few moments before we begin, or before I read the scripture this morning, on this, the importance of today. Uh, I remember as a kid growing up in church, and, and even in my early years of ministry, um, a generation in the church that um, December 7th was always really, really important to. And it should be important to all of us. It's, it's Pearl Harbor. It's the day of Pearl Harbor. Or we remember Pearl Harbor. But, but for, for a, a generation and, and for some, some maybe of, of you, um, it was a day that life changed. The world as, as we knew it changed. And uh, so I knew it was important, but I, I never fully grasped the significance of why it was important until September 11th. And as John alluded, many of us, uh, that became a generational moment um, where life changed forever. And, and it did. And even though we have a, a generation here who, um, in fact, this, this is the, I think the freshman class of high school this year is the first class of, of young people that have come through that were born after 9-11. But their world's different, whether they know it or not. Just like our world was different after December 7th, even though not all of us remember the before and after. Uh, and so it is an important day for us to remember, reflect, as we've done this morning. But I want to just share real quick, very, very briefly, how I choose to remember. There's a lot about that day that most of us remember. We can recall it was one of those moments you always kind of know where you were when you first heard or saw. But I choose my very best not to reflect on 19 people that sought to do an evil that is beyond comprehension. Those who flew into buildings but rather the hundreds that voluntarily ran in after them. Not after them, but after the, those who um, were trapped, those who, who were um, needing rescue, firefighters, police officers, but, it, but even men and women off the street who, there are so many stories of those who got clear of the buildings who then chose to go back because they had something to offer, and many who gave their lives saving others. That's what I choose to remember. I choose to remember those in the aftermath, as I was reminded this morning, whose lives and who continue to serve and give and seek to make a difference um, in the world because of what happened on that day. So all, there, there's different ways that we commemorate, but I, I, I reflect on Jesus' teaching when he says, greater love has no one than this, that he or she lay down their life for a friend. And there's so many of those stories from, from 9-11 that we begin to see God's hand in the midst of evil, not as an agent of it, not as a cause, but beginning to work healing and, and um, good for all things work to good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, to begin to bring some good out of, out of an incomprehensible evil. So, um, so we reflect this morning, and it's important that we do so. And um, there's no easy way to now transition, but I'm going to do my best to transition us um, to a different focus this morning uh, of... Uh, through our scripture that we, we are focused or we're reading from today, and that is First um, Timothy uh, chapter one, verses uh, twelve through nineteen. Paul's letter, not just to Timothy, but to the church, but also we recognize as God's word to us this morning. That that as God's word does shapes us, and um, 
begins to help us understand deeper who, who God is and, and who we are. So let's hear this morning from, from this section of, of Paul's letter. Again, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has given me strength, as he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Friends, sisters, we pray here God's blessing to the reading of his word. Let us pray. Lord, may your word begin to work in us so that we may fight the good fight. That we may, in good conscience, hold on to faith and be more like Jesus and more of a reflection of who you've called us to be. Let your word speak. And in these moments, give us hearts to hear. And then do with us as you will. We pray in Christ. Amen. Priest was retiring after 25 years of serving the same parish of serving the, the same church, and he'd, he'd come to the end of, of his ministry, and, and so he was, he was finishing his, his service among, among that church and the community, and as he was getting ready to retire, uh, the, the church and, and the, the wider area community wanted to, to celebrate him. They wanted to have a retirement celebration for, for this priest because he was well-loved. He had made an impact. He'd made a difference in 25 years of, of serving not only this church, but, but those, those beyond its walls. And so they planned this big extravaganza, and they invited a member of the church who was also a state senator, politician. They invited him to come to be the MC and to give the... Um, the, the, the key speech to celebrate this, this priest's retirement. When the night of the, the celebration came, and as luck would have it, uh, the politician was running late. He was not there on time. He got stuck in traffic, whatever it was. And so rather than just sit with kind of dead air, the, the priest did what, what he knew to do. He, he got up and he shared a little bit. And, and as he started to share and, and talk about his, his experiences at the, at that, in those years of ministry there... He started by saying, you know, you all taught me that God has a wonderful sense of humor. He said, when I came to this church 25 years ago, I didn't know what to expect. There was a lot of anxiety about what, what you all would be like. And my very first day in ministry here, my very, very first confession, a member of the church came in, and in confession he shared that he had um, stolen a TV 
and had lied to the police to get out of it. He confessed that he had embezzled money from his boss. This same person confessed that he had um, had an affair with his boss's wife. He had multiple affairs um, with, with other women that he had, um, uh, that he had tried illicit drugs, that, that he had um, been arrested for indecent exposure, that he had done all these horrible things that he was coming to get absolution for. And he's like, and I was terrified of what kind of church this was based on that experience. But he said, but in 25 years I've learned that you're wonderful. You are a caring, compassionate, um, grace-filled congregation. And he just began to talk about the things that he, would, that he had loved, cherished, and that he would miss about them. Well, about the time he finishes speaking, the, the politician arrives. And he comes up and, and he begins his speech. And he says, it is my honor to be here before you, to be able to, to talk about our dear, loved priest. Uh, he has blessed my life for 25 years. It's an honor to know him. In fact, most people don't know that on his first day here, I had the privilege of being his very first confessional. <laughs> now, here's what I know. Half of you saw that coming. I saw you whispering. You saw it coming. It was not hard to figure out where that story was going. I told it to Tony last night, and she said, they're going to see that a mile away. <laughs> and I said, I know. I know they will. But it's a good story to frame our thinking. Not just because it's kind of cute, but it really does frame our thinking. Because this is what I want you to think about for a moment. What would be your feelings if you knew that your life was about to be laid bare the way that politician's was? Uh, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Whether others, the world, your, deep, your friends, your community, your neighborhood, they were about to learn about you, your darkest secrets, your deepest sins, your greatest regrets, what would be the emotion that would raise within you? For me, it would be terror, you know? It would be terror because there's things about us that we don't want the world to know. There's things about our stories, our experiences, our choices, that our sin that that we don't want the world to know, which is why confessions are done privately, whether it be in a Catholic church or whether it be in any setting. We, we don't air those things out. But I want you thinking about it because Paul does. Paul does. He writes this letter to Timothy. He writes this letter to the church. And he is very transparent about who he is, about his story. Here again what he said in verse 13, one simple statement. He said, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. Says to his audience, I want you to know here are my deepest, deepest secrets. And they're really not secrets. Much of the church and the Jewish community knew who Paul had been. They'd experienced it. But to this new Gentile community, this world that he's reaching and planting churches, whether they know his story or not, he wants to make sure. He wants to do a moment of public confession before anybody else can let the cat out of the bag know who I am. Blasphemer. Persecutor. Violent man. He lays it all out there. And if we're honest about reflecting on what that might, would be like, for some of us, it, it makes us a little squeamish. To be 
that transparent and vulnerable. I'll tell you my nature, my personality. I I don't uh, enjoy, I get no pleasure or laughter or entertainment out of watching somebody embarrass themselves. And what I mean by that is, well, who who enjoys that? Well, you know, there are shows that will kind of market that. Uh, American Idol for many years marketed that. They would, they would start their auditions, and you would see auditions. If you ever watched that show, you'd see the very talented, and you would see the opposite end of the spectrum, the ones who thought they were talented, but they were awful. And that was very intentional. I mean, they went through auditions. They chose who got on TV, and they knew that some people would like the train wreck. And I'm not casting stones. Don't, don't, feel, don't hear me being critical. If, if you like the train wreck, that's okay. But I don't. Because it's painful for me to watch somebody get exposed that way. Because what happens is, and this happens at talent shows, I, I sometimes hate going to talent shows for the same reason. Because we probably, you've probably had that experience, maybe a karaoke or whatever, where somebody stood up who really thought they could sing, who really thought they were talented and were awful. And you know that what's drawing the attention is not the, the, the level of their talent, but the lack of it. They're, they're, they've, they're exposed, whether they recognize it or not. I saw a comedian years ago that crashed and burned on stage, just, just died on stage. And I mean, it was awful for me. I just died inside. I just shrivel up watching that. And there's so many, and speakers, when speakers get up and have, you know, trip over words and can't communicate clearly, I know what that feels like. That's the worst for me because it's, it's a nightmare scenario. And so what happens is, though, I recognize that in those moments for me, what happens is what becomes one of my great fears is that you kind of get exposed for, for either um, the, the gifts that you don't have. You become, whether you want to or not, you become more transparent than you might want to be. And that happens in, in very, very deep ways. There's not a preacher alive that I've ever talked to that doesn't at moments just shake with the recognition, the internal awareness that we all have that if you knew us for who we really are sometimes, you wouldn't sit and listen to us. It doesn't have that fear. Because there's too many times when I'm sharing with you what I know to be eternal truth, what I know to be God's desire for our lives, and I sit here and go, oh my gosh, if they only knew how bad I am at this. If they only knew how short I fall in living into the very truth I'm trying to teach. That is a tough thing to, to own and, and to recognize and, and to, to confess, even though even in my confession, I'm not telling you the specifics. Notice that. I'm, I'm telling you a broad truth, but I'm not giving you the examples. I say sometimes I like to knock myself off the pedestal before you can because I know me. And so it's that transparency. I was reading on one of the rabbit trails I, I follow in the course of a, of a week of preparing uh, that, that dream that, that some people have, especially if you've ever been up in front of crowds regularly, of, of that nightmare of being up in front of an audience and, and not being fully dressed, you know, whether in your skivvies or not at all, whatever it may be, that nightmare that, that sometimes we'll have. And I started reading how psychologists begin to unpack what that, what that means, the understanding of that kind of a nightmare. And one of the, and there's a number of them, but one of them is, it's that fear of being truly seen. 
You know, because clothes are an exterior. They hide something. And that nightmare kind of reveals that there's some anxiety about an audience truly seeing you. And, and so that becomes that, that, that wall that we create, that all of us create, to kind of hide some things so we're not completely um, transparent. Well, Paul seeks in his own life to knock the wall down. He wants to be completely transparent to the church. He wants to be completely transparent to Timothy. He wants to be completely transparent to those who will read what he writes, that I am, as he puts it, the, the chief of all sinners. That, that I am, um, you know, we, we can argue whether he really is the worst of the worst, because there's some pretty awful examples of, of evil in human history, and most of us wouldn't put Paul at the top of that list, but Paul puts himself there. And he says, I am the worst of all because I'm a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent, violent man. And he wants to remind the church of his story. Now, most of us remember that story. Maybe you're not as familiar with it. But we get introduced to Paul in Acts. But he wasn't Paul, he was Saul. And we first experience him in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9 when a young man by the name of Stephen becomes the first martyr for the faith, the first to die for Jesus. After he gives a fiery sermon, an impassioned sermon, and in talking about Jesus, he says to his Jewish audience, this Jesus, this Savior of the world, whom you crucified. Don't forget what you did to him. And, and strangely enough, they don't like that sermon. And they become angry. And the scriptures tell us that they took up the stones the rocks to stone Stephen, and that a young Pharisee stood by the side and he held the cloaks of those who would take Stephen's life, and his name was Saul. Didn't even have the, the guts to throw a rock, but he stood and he instigated, and that became his mission to reveal, to expose the church, these followers of this infant faith, this, this new faith, this resurrection faith, and to stamp the church out, and that was his sole purpose in life. Until on a road to Damascus to do that, he's encountered by a blinding light, and that light is Jesus. And his life has changed. His trajectory has changed. His identity has changed from Saul to Paul. And at that point, most of us, me at least, my, my biggest desire would be to divorce myself from that story. Once I realized the error of my ways, the sin of my past, the mistakes, and the horror I had infiltrated, I would want to divorce myself, put that away. And claim that new identity. Forget what is behind and press on to what is ahead. That's what Paul says. But there's a part of Paul that wants to make sure we don't forget his story. You don't forget his story. And this is why. He wants us to understand this powerful truth of our faith. It's not that he's celebrating where he come from. Not that he's proud of any moment. I believe there was a lot of tears and a lot of heartbreak in Paul as he remembered what he had done. But Paul wants us to remember that to first, we first must grasp the depth of his sin to be able to celebrate the height of God's grace and mercy. We have got to grasp the depth of how far from God he was to recognize the power of the transforming love of Jesus. And he says, you think you're bad. You think you've made mistakes. You think you've sinned. Let me tell you what I did. Paul wants to win at everything. 
He even wants to win it being the worst. He says, I, I mean, you think you've made some mistakes? I persecuted the church. You think you did evil? I stood by why people were killed for their faith. I was the worst. And yet Jesus' love and mercy transformed me. Gave me a new identity, a new story. What he wants us to know is you can't get so far away from God. He'll say, I was as far from God as you could possibly be. And he got a hold of me. And because I have hope, you have hope. Because I receive grace, you can receive grace. Because God showed me mercy, God will show you mercy. You can't get that far away from him. And he never forget where he came from. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I'm the least worthy to be called an apostle of God. But I am. He says right here, this is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. He came for sinners. And we need to own that. And Paul wants to own that so that we can celebrate the power of God's mercy and his grace. And the truth is, our scriptures are full of those kinds of stories. Our scriptures are full of the stories of men and women whose lives were laid bare whose story and their failures and their sin and their shortcomings became obvious, and they fell before God in need of his mercy, and time and time again they received it. And they became instruments of immeasurable change and usefulness, as we talked about last week, and worth. Men like Moses, who killed a man in Egypt, was a murderer, was a stutterer, was hiding in the desert for fear for his life, who laid himself before God and became the leader who would lead his people out of slavery and into the prom- or to the banks of the promised land. Stories like Rahab, who was a prostitute in Jericho, who God would use to bring victory to his people as the walls would come crumbling down. Or Esther, who was in the times just a woman, who became an instrument of deliverance. We can go on and on. Hosea, who had a wrecked marriage, an awful marriage, who God used to become an inspiration for his people. Jeremiah, who just was probably, if not on the verge, was probably suffered from depression, who becomes a voice of hope and deliverance. I mean, we can trace this. Mary, a young unwed mother, who becomes the mother to the Savior of the world. Or Peter, who doesn't understand a daggum thing the entire three years he spends with Jesus. Doesn't get anything right. Has a hot head, impulsive, thoughtless. And Jesus, by the way, says, Peter, you're the rock on which I will build my church. I mean, that's good news, friends. That's good news because that's our stories. If we're honest, that's our stories. may not be the story anybody knows about you. Maybe part of your history that you don't share, and that's okay. As long as you're honest about it. Because God's a God who redeems those stories. And that's why Paul says he's not celebrating his past. He's not proud of that. But he's saying when you understand how deep I'd fallen, you understand how high God lifted me up. Changed my life. That's the story of his grace, of his love and of his mercy that we celebrate. Friday I was... As this is kind of a, something that happens a lot as I'm, I, I tell stories. I was surfing through the television channels. And uh, I came upon a movie, just a few years old. But it was a movie about William Wilberforce. 
uh, kind of a historical narrative of, of part of his life. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the name William Wilberforce, but if you know your world history, especially English history, William Wilberforce was a committed evangelical Christian, follower of Jesus, had his life changed as an adult, and he became a crusader for the abolition of slavery and the slave trade in England and spent much of his adult life as a member of the parliament fighting for many, many years unsuccessfully to abolish the slave trade in England. One of the influencers of um, William Wilberforce, one of his, some historians say one of his mentors, was another name that may not be familiar to you, but that's the name of John Newton. Now, for some of you, you know the name, but for all of you, if you don't know the name, you know the work. Because John Newton had at one time been the captain of a slave ship, had been part of the slave trade himself, who also had his life changed by the grace of God. And that change was so powerful that he became a preacher and a hymn writer. And he wrote a hymn that you know by the name of Amazing Grace. And the name of the movie I stumbled upon about William Wilberforce was called, is called Amazing Grace. And John Newton would spend the rest of his life campaigning for the abolition of the slave trade in a wonderful full circle. John Newton died in December of 1807. In March of 1807, the English Parliament outlawed the uh, African slave trade. So he would live to see the fruits of some of his labors. And of course, we know the words of that hymn, I once was blind, but now I see was lost, or was, was lost, but now I'm found. We know, we know the power of, of, that, of that hymn. But there's another line that really struck me very powerfully, that, that is, that John spoke, John Newton spoke at the end of his life. In the movie, it's credited, or it's, it's referenced in a conversation between him and William Wilberforce. But it's this, as his health was failing, as he was, the, the end of his life was coming near and that life was starting to ebb from him. John Newton said these words. He said, though my memory is failing, two things I know clearly, that I am a great sinner and that Jesus is a great Savior. That I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. Here's what I know. Here's what Paul knew about his life. He was a great sinner, but Jesus was a great Savior. Here's what I know about my life. I am a great sinner, but Jesus is a great Savior. Here's what I know about your life. Not the details. But the truth, you are a great sinner, and Jesus is a great Savior. Don't be afraid to have your life laid bare. Like I said, it may not be something you ever need to stand before a crowd and share, but be honest before God. Be honest, because when we recognize our need, we receive His grace. When we recognize the depths, we can experience the power of His mighty hand that lifts us to great heights. We are great sinners, but we serve a great Savior.
Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for that promise that Paul writes about, that the history of your people testifies to, that our lives are testimony to, that we have fallen short of the glory of God. But that trustworthy saying deserves full acceptance. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For that we give you thanks. We don't celebrate our sin, but we rest in your mercy. We don't hold fast to our mistakes, but we are freed by your grace. And for that we give you all praise and glory. In Christ's holy name, amen.